All right, tonight I want to talk to you about seeing the larger motifs in Scripture. If you know anything about um, what I've shared in, in recent years, especially in recent months, I have a tendency to look at the broader perspective when it comes to approaching the Bible. And so I kind of want to, um, to try to convey to you, uh, maybe uh, to sort of expand your horizon on how to approach the Scripture so that you'll get more out of it, all right? So I want to talk about seeing the larger themes or motifs in Scripture, basically so that we avoid nearsighted or myopic views of verses that are out of context. And, uh, you know, because we can find our favorite verse that's sort of like, you know, we're paging through our Bible and go, you know, or you're, you're surfing through your Bible and you, you come up with a scripture, wow, that's a great one, you know, and, it may, and maybe it ministers to you in the moment, but you know, it could very well be out of context, you know? And so you're believing for something that's out of context, right? And so, of course, that's not a good practice. So I liken uh, the illustration I often use is I liken it to using a mapping program, like, you know, Google Maps or whatever. If you start out at the street or house level, uh, you could easily get lost in the details and misapply the verse. Uh, you don't know where you are in the whole scheme and don't know where it's taking you. And so here's a picture, for example, uh, at street level. Okay, so here's a street level. There are no license plates, so you cannot know where this is unless you, maybe you're, you know something about trees, and then you might realize it maybe not somewhere around here. But, uh, but it could be because that's a giant pine tree in there. The reason I know it's a pine tree and the reason I know this house is because that's the house I, I grew up in, uh, up in Canada. And that big pine tree right there I planted when I was nine years old in the third grade. And uh, anyway, I stayed there uh, from about, about the third grade through until uh, I left for college. But that is in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. But you would never know that from looking at the street level. So whenever you're approaching the Bible and you're only stuck on a particular phrase or particular verse, you're losing the overall scope of what the Lord's really trying to say in the thematic structure, right? In the overall motif of the scripture. And so, but when you zoom out, and that's the next picture, so I zoomed out in Google Maps and showing uh, the place where I was born, Calgary, which is where that house was, right? So then I get some kind of basic idea. So I see Edmonton, I see Calgary. Of course, I see, you know, Great Falls, Montana, down in the bottom right-hand corner. I see Spokane, Washington, um, you know. So then I kind of get my bearings, right? So the same way as you, you should, we should approach Scripture that way, we should sort of like zoom out first and then come in close so that we can properly apply the, the structure of Scripture to our lives. So, as an illustration of this, um, another example is, for example, you take the first five books of the Bible, which are called, we, in, they're called Pentateuch, but also the Torah, right? So the Torah, which means teaching, is the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. But when you actually look at the macro structure of those books, you will find out that Genesis and Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy actually sort of mirror each other. And the very center, the center focus of the Torah, 
which was put together by godly men who were moved by the Holy Spirit, right? The, the actual center of the Torah is the book of Leviticus, which contains what? The priesthood, the tabernacle, the, the approach to God, the, ultimately the day of atonement, the blood of the lamb on the mercy seat which, of course, we understand that theme, right? Because we've already zoomed out and understand that where the Bible talks about the lamb slain in the blood on the Day of Atonement, we're talking about who? Jesus, all right? So Leviticus forms like the peak or the main idea of the first five books of the Bible. But we won't know that unless we zoom out. If we zoom in we'll get stuck in casuistic law, case law, in the book of Leviticus, and we can't figure out why it's important to not seethe, uh, not cook a goat in its mother's milk, right? We'll be all caught up with this concept, and rich, which is a rich idea, by the way. It's wonderfully rich. It would be great to preach on that someday. But in any case, we, we could get stuck on the minutia and, and have a myopic view of Scripture, right, but if we understand the thematic structure, then we get a much healthier, holistic approach to the Bible. Amen. And then we won't be led astray as well, because very often cults and that sort of thing focus on certain things uh, in order to draw our attention away from the reality of who Jesus is. The book of Leviticus itself is actually written in, in what we call chiastic structure, like an X where all of, the, all of the various themes mirror each other, and chapter 16, which is the chapter on the Day of Atonement, is the very thematic center of the book of Leviticus, which is also the center of the Torah. All right, so that, that just kind of gives you a general idea. So to kind of further illustrate this, I want to talk about how the Lord is our salvation, the Lord is our shepherd, and the Lord is our sovereign or our king. So we're going to look at Psalm 22, 23, and 24 just really quickly. We're going to trace some of the motif uh, through the Psalms. How should we read the Psalms? If we only read the Psalms for ourselves, about ourselves, trying to get comfort for ourselves, then we miss the plain reading of the text. David is composing a prophetic song and it's probably about, initially, about his own experiences. And then we apply the Psalms Christologically, or what we call the fancy term Christotelically. And I'll explain that in a minute. New Testament authors saw Christ, or Messiah, as the subject, as the end goal, the telos of the Old Testament. Romans 10.4. Christ is the end, the Greek word telos, or telos, of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. In other words, the purpose of the law, the Torah, was to bring us to Christ. Christ is the end message. He's the end goal of the whole message of the Old Testament. We see this in other scriptures as well. We need to understand that Peter calls David a prophet in the book of Acts chapter 2. In Luke 24, 44... Jesus explains that everything must be fulfilled that is written about him in the law of Moses, the prophets, and Psalms. 
In Greek, there's no definite article before the word psalms. And the psalms can therefore be thought of, included or subsumed under the prophets. So David is a prophet when he writes the psalms. He's composing these beautiful songs that are being sung in the, in the temple area and in the courts. They're worshiping God, and yet they're full of prophetic energy and insight predicting the future Messiah who was to come, Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, is the telos, the end goal of the law. And so when he explains, when Jesus explains everything, the, about himself in the law of Moses, the prophets, and Psalms. Psalms is sort of subsumed under the concept of prophets. And speaking of the Old Testament narratives about Israel, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11, now these things happened to them, that is Israel, as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come right? So everything that happened to Old Testament Israel is an example to us who live in the last days. And the Bible tells us clearly in, Acts, in the book of Acts that the last days started at the cross of Christ. Okay, now we may be in the last of the last days. <laughs> Let's all hope, right? Hope Jesus comes soon. It ain't looking prettier out there. But we need time to evangelize as well. Romans 15, 4, a like scripture, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. So let's look then at Psalm 22. The Lord is our salvation. Why did I title it that? Because Psalm 22 is... is quoted often by the New Testament authors as referring to Christ. It has a prophetic intent of talking about the life of Jesus. It starts out with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where have we heard that? It's Jesus' cry of dereliction on the cross where he's crying out and saying, my God, my God, Matthew 27, 46. We hear about the mocking of the crowd and them wagging their heads, also in Matthew 27. The challenge of the crowd. Let, let, let Elijah, let the Lord deliver him. He said he could. Matthew 27, 43. And also the dividing of the garments, Matthew 27, 35. Psalm 22, 18. So this psalm is, is used as a way to convey messianic ideas. But we can learn something through this. As I was reading this, Psalm 22, I was so touched by the suffering of Christ that's depicted here. Of course it refers primarily to David, but it also refers prophetically to Jesus. And Jesus' suffering is just amazingly hard to think about and to read. He's lamenting, and yet he's lamenting in trust of his heavenly Father. Notice how Jesus starts out in Psalm 22, starts out, My God, my God. There's a proper place for lament in the Christian life. Some of us think that we should not shed tears, that we should only express success and victory. 
But in fact, lament is part of the way God made us. But we must lament properly. We must do it as we trust the Lord for the outcome. Amen? Lament, even though you may experience distance from the Lord, because here's, here's divine distance, right? And how many of us have felt God at a distance sometimes in our life, right? And we wonder, where are you, Lord? We cry out to him, lament is proper, but it should be within the context of continued trust. Even in moments of divine distance, why are you so far from saving me, from the words of my groaning? I cry by day, but you do not answer, but I find no rest. And yet, in Psalm 22, verse 3, all of a sudden, if we could put ourselves in Jesus' shoes, so to speak, from his perspective, all of a sudden then he turns immediately from this lament, this sense of distance from the Lord, and he turns and says, but yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. So there's this dichotomy, right? This sense of lament, but yet we trust. And that's the way many of us are. We're, we're sorrowful for some of the things that we have done or that have happened to us or things outside our control or when God seems distant. And yet we must turn to praise the Lord. We must acknowledge Him as holy. And incidentally, the, a better meaning for the word holy means covenant faithfulness. God is wholly devoted, completely devoted towards us. You are holy. Lord, you're, you're wholly dedicated. And God, I'm going to praise you, and you're going you're to be enthroned. You're going to sit in my praise. And we've got to learn to trust. And it goes on. In you, verse 4, our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. Verse 5, to you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. He uses the word trust three times over. Trust, trust, trust. In the middle of your lament, trust, trust, trust. Amen? David and Christ feel mocked and feel their weakness. David says in verse 6, I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in Yahweh. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. They're mocking him. David then and Christ prophetically remember God's faithful history. Verse 9, yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth and from my mother's womb. You have been my God. Don't be far from me. Trouble is near. There's no one to help. But yet, so you see at the lament, again, he's expressing continued trust. And then they depict their enemies zoomorphically, in other words, using the, the picture of animals. Bulls, lions, dogs. Bulls are surrounding me, strong bulls of Bashan. These are uh, of Bashan. They, the bulls of Bashan were the, the Bashan region produced the most well-fed, the strongest cattle. 
And he says, I'm surrounded by these rich, fat, strong bulls who are coming at me. The prophet Amos talked about the cows of Bashan, meaning the rich women who were supporting idol worship in the alternative temples to the one in Jerusalem. And he said judgment is coming upon them. Amos is a beautiful book. Psalm twenty-two, thirteen. They open wide their mouths like a ravening and roaring lion. Where have we heard that before? Like a roaring lion, he seeks those whom he may devour. Such an apt depiction of the sufferings of the cross. He says in verse 14, I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. Can we see Jesus in this? Of course we can. It's so powerful and so strong to think about, even as we've just come out of the Easter season, but to meditate again, and as we should every time we take communion, the Lord's Supper, we should meditate on the depths of suffering that Christ endured for our sake so that we can have eternal life. For you and me, Jesus died and bore our sin. There's no tender mercy in this situation. There's only animalistic morals. He says the dogs, which were not pets in the ancient Near East, these are running packs of ravenous animals who would attack anything that showed any weakness. And they depict in Scripture people with animalistic morals. And, and again, we encounter these rapacious lions. Dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. One of the, the, the Hebrew uh, indicates the lions bore holes in my hands and my feet. I count on my bones. They stare and they gloat. They divide my garments, as the Roman soldiers did. And for my clothing, they cast lots even before he died. It's a sorry position to be in when people are starting to fight over your clothes and you're not even dead. But verse 19, he says, I wish I'd have put this up here, but you, O Lord, do not be far off. Oh, you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul. And then he cries out and says, You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen, which forms an inclusio with these. Uh, an inclusio means like a, like a paragraph marker uh, where it starts with the strong bulls and ends with the strong oxen. All the sufferings sort of paragraphed in there. You've rescued me. And then he says, you make me triumph. That's so beautiful. Jesus, in the midst of his suffering, calling out to his Father, why have you forsaken me? Everybody's around me. They're all accusing me. Everyone has left me. And yet you, Father, inhabit my praise. And ultimately he says, you make me triumph. A very significant form of a Hebrew verb here. If you want to know the fancy term, you can ask me later. But it means expressing confidence in the Lord's deliverance. It's a done deal. A done deal. You caused me to triumph. 
So in our lament, we still keep on trusting the Lord. Amen? And he goes on and keeps on praising. Then a couple more things. Psalm 23, as I mentioned. So for Psalm 22, the Lord is my salvation. Psalm 23, of course, the Lord is my shepherd. But I want you to think about it not just as if Jesus or the Lord is David's shepherd and not just as if he's my shepherd, but I want you to read it Christologically as if the Father is the shepherd of Jesus. So Jesus is addressing the Father and saying, Father, you are my shepherd. I shall not lack, right? This is like the prayer, the, sta- the stance, the faith of Christ in the midst of his ministry where he expresses faith. Even though I walk through darkest valleys, I will fear no evil because you are with me. You are with me is the mathematical center of the psalm. In other words, I can't explain, I don't have time, but the very center of Psalm 23 is you are with me. That's what Jesus is saying to his heavenly Father even as he's facing evil and death and enemies surrounding him. He sees the Lord as his shepherd, he sees the Lord as his host, and he sees the Lord with him in the temple forever. A statement of great faith. And then lastly, Psalm 24, the Lord is my sovereign, the Lord is my king. Who is he, this king of glory? The Lord of hosts, he is the king of glory. Hosts always means armies, okay? In case you're wondering, old-style English kind of translated it strange. Hosts used to mean armies in old English. So when you read the Lord of hosts, and trust your newer translation that say the Lord of armies, because that's what it means. But who is the king? (laughs) So we see a progression here, right? We see Jesus, we see David, first of all, as a man who's undergoing severe pressure. He was chased for years by Saul, had to live with the Philistines, was almost killed when the Amalekites came and raided and stole his wives and goods. I mean, David went through torment, right? And yet he wrote songs of praise and expressed faith in God. And he saw the Lord as his shepherd, and he declared the Lord was his king. So then we see it in Jesus. We read it Christologically. And we see Jesus as going through the suffering, as being the suffering Messiah and lamenting in his suffering and yet expressing clear faith and trust in the middle of his lament. And then declaring that the Lord is king, right? And he's going to sit down with him at his right hand in his throne, right? So we see this progression, suffering, shepherding, sovereignty. So with our lives, we learn the lessons of, of suffering. We lament in faith and trust in God. We learn to walk with the Lord and to look to him as our shepherd who meets our needs, as our host, our protector, as the one with whom we will dwell forever in his temple. And we acknowledge his lordship and kingship in our lives. We progress through lament, through shepherding, to kingship. Amen?
So the reason I shared all that with you is so that when you approach the scripture, think thematically. Look at the overall picture. Remember the zoomed out map. And then zoom in and find the details. But never lose sight of the overall map of God's grace in his truth. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, bless your word, I pray in Jesus' name.